Hey, we're so grateful that you guys are with us this morning, and I look forward to a, a great 2018. And uh, with that, every year I decide, you know, at the very beginning of the year, I'm going to kind of bring some sort of challenge. And some years I kind of backtrack and I give you kind of a, a recap of the previous year and kind of a vision for the new year. And so we've been debating, like, what do we do? And uh, so I came up with this idea of, man, just uh, what, what would it look like if we just talked about being new? And when I'm talking about being new, I'm not talking about being the new you. I'm not talking about turning over a new leaf like you did last year. I'm not talking about starting to work out and uh, starting a new Bible reading plan. I'm not talking about any of those things that by mid-October or by mid-March you're already done with, right? Uh, I'm talking about being the new you, being who God's called you to be. Almost the idea of the 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, in verse 17 it just says, If anyone is in a new creation in Christ, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And then in verse 18, it goes on, it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. On verse 20, it says that we are God's ambassadors, that he is making his appeal to men through us. And so the idea of new is, what would it look like if you are who God called you to be? That if he called you out uh, of darkness and into the marvelous light of Jesus, that you lived in that light. That if he has forgiven you of sin, that you would live as a testimony of one who has been forgiven. That you would be a messenger, an ambassador, that you would be a person of hope, a person of peace. That people see something different in you and they get excited about being around you. Why? Because you're not always critical, you're not always demeaning, but there seems to be life and joy and hope in you. And people look at you and they're just, they get you recharged and because you're an encouragement to them. And it's simply because they knew who you once were and now who God's called you to be. And so I can't think of a better story to show you uh, than that of a guy named Paul. And I could walk through the entire book of Acts and I could show you Paul and his life about who he was before God and about uh, who uh, God called him to be in Acts chapter 9. I could show you his missionary journeys all the way through the book of Acts, uh, his first missionary journey, his second one, his third one. But what I want you to do is I want you to see Paul recount it for himself in Acts chapter 26. And what you're going to see here is in Acts chapter 26, Paul is going to find himself in front of a group of men. And uh, the two prominent people in the room are a, a guy named Festus, which happens to be a governor in Rome. He's proceeding... Uh, uh, following a guy named uh, Felix. Felix was the governor of Rome, and in Acts chapter 24, Paul had gone before him and given his, uh, really, an account of what's happened in his life and some of the charges that some of the Jewish people were bringing against a guy named Paul. Matter of fact, the Jews just wanted Paul dead, to be honest with you. Uh, he was a guy who uh, had gotten kind of tied in circles with this guy named Jesus and whom they've already crucified, and now Paul is claiming that there's a resurrection, and Felix doesn't know what to do with him. He loved talking with Paul, loved to hear what Paul said about Jesus and the scriptures and all these different things, but he never really charged him at the same time because he wanted to do the Jews a favor. He would never let Paul go as well. And so a new governor comes into town. It's a couple years later. You find yourself in about 58 to 59 AD, um, and, and here it is. This guy uh, named Festus is now a governor, and King Agrippa, another guy, happens to come in. King Agrippa is one of the... Uh, He's basically a king in one of the Roman states, and he, he comes from the Herodian line. Uh, matter of fact, his great-great-grandfather was the guy who uh, tried to coerce the Magi into telling him where Jesus was because they wanted him dead. 
Uh, his great-grandfather was the guy who killed and beheaded John the Baptist. His dad was the guy who killed the uh, half-brother of Jesus, James. And so this is the kind of guy that Paul's going to be talking to, and his name's Agrippa. And so Agrippa's going to be sitting in the room with this guy named Festus, and Agrippa's excited about this because he wants to hear about what this guy named Paul has to say and about what he has to do with Jesus, and here's why. Agrippa is a learned man. He's, he's studied in uh, Jewish tradition. He knows about Jesus. He, he's heard these stories. There's nothing new to him, and so he's interested to hear a different perspective. And so in Acts chapter 26, Paul is going to kind of lay out his claim about what's going on in his life, and he's going to tell you from beginning to end. And so we don't have to study the entire book of Acts. We can just kind of catch it all up in Acts chapter 26. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one as you leave here today. And you can simply go by our resource counter, which uh, Dick Patterson was telling you about. As you walk out the front doors of our building, on the right-hand side, there will be a volunteer there. If you're a guest for the first time, we'd love to bless your family with free t-shirts. If, if you're not a guest or whether you are or not, you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with a Bible. Now here it is, the 32 verses, okay? Now take hope though, today we're only going to read 29 of them. So here we go. Verse 1, so Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and he made his defense. And so here it is. He's in front of Festus the governor. He's in front of this guy named Agrippa, who, a king of one of the Roman provinces. And then Agrippa happens to have this lady with him named Bernice, which is his half, or is actually his sister in an incestuous relationship. Okay, and so she's in the room as well. And so he says, Paul, speak. And so Paul, Paul in verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that's before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg that you would listen to me patiently. And so he goes, Agrippa, I know that you're a studied man. I know that you know all the things that are happening around the Jewish culture. I know you've heard about Jesus. I know you've heard about the controversies. This is nothing new to you, but I am asking one thing. Would you please be patient with me? And what he's saying is, is would you just please make sure to listen? Like, don't tune me out at some point. And so I'm, I'm going to make the same plea to you in this room. Would you be patient with me today, okay? Like, don't tune it out because at the very end, I'm going to put a bow tie on this whole thing, okay? And so he goes, would you be patient? And here's why, because he goes, I'm going to be talking about theological matters. We're not going to just be talking about things that you've learned about Jewish culture. We're not going to just be having coffee talk or small chit-chat. I'm going to tell you about my life and about the theological principles that have changed my life. And so please, please, please don't tune me out. And then in verse 4, Paul begins, and he says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the very beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul says, I am a learned man. I grew up, I studied all the law and the prophets. I know the Torah, which are the five books of the Bible that the Jews hold in high prominence. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He goes, those are the, the pillars of the law. He goes, I know them front and back. I am a studied man. I am held in high regard among my people. I was a Pharisee. I did everything that they would want me to do they would testify to the same thing. I'm not telling you something they don't already know. Then in verse 9, he says, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. He goes, The reason I stand here today 
is not because I have some crazy radical thought. He goes, matter of fact, I think the same way these men do. He goes, you've got this clan of Sadducees and Pharisees. They are learned and trained men, and they believe in the law, and they believe in what the prophets have spoken. The only difference is, is that in the law and in the prophets, God didn't just promise us as the nation of Israel in Genesis 12 and also in Deuteronomy that we would be a people who would have land, people, and blessings. But he also promised, even from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, that the people of Israel would one day have a Messiah and he would come to set men free. And he goes, I happen to believe that. And they would say the same thing, that they believe that. The only challenge that I am saying, and that's what Paul's saying, is different than what they believe, is that I happen to believe that the Messiah has come. I believe that the Messiah came and he lived a perfect life, that he dwelt among his own people, that his own people, these same people, have rejected him. They have refused to hear what Moses spoke about, what Micah, one of the prophets, said, about what Isaiah spoke about, what Jeremiah said. They have refused to take heed to the things that were taught. Whereas I look at them and I believe that all those things have come to pass, that God wants us as a people of Israel to be saved. And that man has come. I believe that man is Jesus, and they believe that that man is not Jesus. And so there's our dispute. So here's what I want you to catch. If you're sitting in this room, Christianity is not some new way of thinking. It is actually Jewish orthodoxy at its best. All you believe is what the Bible teaches from beginning to end. You believe that there was a people that God called out of nothingness, and that people was led by a guy named Abraham out of Ur of Chaldea, and he became the father of this nation called Israel. God promised them land, people, and blessing. And when they were disobedient, God would take away land, people, and blessing. But he did say that one day I'm going to make a new covenant with you, and I'm going to give you a new hope, and I'm going to give you a new message, and I'm going to give you a Messiah that will take the sins of the world away. And that's what you and I believe, friends, and that's what Paul would say, I believe, but we have a dispute over the Messiah. And so that's what he's imploring between this guy named Agrippa. He goes, I don't believe anything different than what the 12 tribes of Israel hope to attain. I just believe I've already obtained it. He's not being arrogant. He's just trying to say that's the dispute. The dispute comes over one person, and that's Jesus and what you do with him. And then Paul asks an incredible question in verse 8, and he asks it to Festus, and to Agrippa and this lady Bernice, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now, what he's saying is, he's saying even in Judaism, there is the dispute whether or not God could raise from the dead. For instance, the Pharisee believes that God could raise someone from the dead. The Sadducee, not so much. And so here it is, this, this Pharisaical line of thinking, which Paul was notorious from coming from, this line of thought. He goes, Pharisees believe that God could resurrect someone. And he goes, all I'm saying is, do you believe that? And so he asked Agrippa and Festus and Bernice this same question. Do you believe that God could resurrect somebody from the dead? Now think about that for just a second. That's really the question that you and I ought to be asking people. That really is one of the foundational things of Jewish orthodoxy and the principles thereof. Do you believe that that God could do something like that. I mean, think about this. In Colossians 1, we believe that Jesus is the creator of all things, both visible and invisible. 
we believe that he spoke the world into existence, that he recreates things. John 2, water into wine. He has the opportunity to recreate the human heart like you and I, take us out of our sin and bring us into a new life in Jesus. We believe that. We believe that the same spirit that, that lived in Paul is a spirit that lives in us. We believe that God took the people of Israel and they brought them across the Red Sea and then used that to plummet it on the people of the Egyptians. We believe that God saved Jonah from a well. We believe that God delivered a guy named David from the hands of a crazy madman named Goliath. We believe that God has done multiple things. And so he goes, hey, if you believe all these things, do you believe that God could raise a man from the dead? It's a really good question. And here's why. Because as Americans, we have a hope in something, right? Most of us is an American dream. Paul goes, look, if, if you've got a dream other than Jesus, then, then your hope is lying in the wrong place because an American j- dream doesn't help you. I mean, honestly, a, a Muslim's idea of paradise doesn't save them. A, a Hindu's idea of nirvana is not, is not going to help them. He goes, only a resurrected Jesus helps. Do you believe that? And that's a question that you have to really ask yourself. What do you believe about the person of Jesus? Paul goes, I believe in Jesus. And I believe in the resurrection. But then he's going to tell you why he believes in him, okay? Why it is that he's put his faith in that. And so he, he backtracks a little bit. Verse 9, he says, Now I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He goes, honestly, I didn't like Jesus when I first heard him, okay? I, when I heard, heard his name. Now, there's speculation as to whether Paul ever would have crossed paths with Jesus. I think maybe he would have heard his teaching. Maybe he would have sat under his teaching in the synagogue at some point. I don't know that. Can't, can't prove it. But I do know this. He knew who Jesus was, and he knew that his mission was to stomp out anything that had to do with Jesus. And in verse 10, he says, and so I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put in prison, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues, and I tried to make them blasphemy. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul goes, look, my only goal in life was to know the law and to be zealous for God. And anything that had to do with Jesus, he goes, I was just trying to, to put a mark on it. I was trying to take it out. And it didn't matter. I would go anywhere in my zealousness for God to get rid of this idea of the way, this movement called Christianity. He goes, if it had to do with Jesus, I was going to get rid of it. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 7, you would see one of the first martyrs of the Christian church, a guy named Stephen, would be stoned. And in the very last part of that, in the uh, about verse 51 or 52, you would see that Stephen uh, is, is being killed and Paul is right there in the midst of it. He is in the middle of this guy's death. Now, What's incredible about this is, is, is simply this. When Stephen is dying, Stephen's going to literally commit his last words to the Lord, and he's going to look up, and there he's going to see Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne. Now, I don't know about you, but if you ever read through the Scriptures, you'll always notice that Jesus is always sitting at the right hand of the throne. But in this particular case, apparently Stephen was a guy who was so devoted to the cause of Jesus and what he had done that when he committed his last breath and he had spoken the words that he did, that Jesus seemed to get up off his throne, almost in a sense of like, I am applauding you for a life well lived. And, and here it is, this guy named Saul, who would later become Paul, is there watching these things. Now, I'll tell you this, the greatest hope in Acts chapter 7, which I love, is the fact that you would live a life 
so well that Jesus would get up off his throne for you. Could you imagine that? Could you think about what Stephen must have been as the first Christian martyr that Jesus would get up off his throne for this man? And here it is, this guy who would later become one of the greatest pillars of all the Christian faith that we would know, Paul, who is there in the midst of Stephen's persecuting, persecuted, almost putting his name to it, going, I'm glad it happened. In Acts chapter 8, listen to this in verses 1 through 3. A Saul approved his execution, speaking of Stephen's, but there also arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entered house after house. He dragged off men and women, and he committed them to prison. So as Paul stands before Agrippa, here's what he's saying. I was one of these men. I think very similar to these men. The only difference now is that Jesus has done something with me. I had this thing happen to me, and I'm going to tell you about it. And it changed the way I see the world, and it changed the way that I see men and women and how I treat men and women. And so in verse 12, you'll see that he's not going to persecute anymore those who are part of the church. And here's why. Verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. So in his zealousness, he's heading out to persecute more people. As he's heading to Damascus, verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, who are you, Lord? And then the Lord said, I am Jesus in whom you are persecuting. Now, this is where it's really cool if you're a Christian. Think about Stephen. Stephen saw Jesus get up off the throne for him on his behalf. Now, here's why it's really cool too, is that here it is, and, and Saul hears this voice out of heaven as he sees this light on the road to Damascus, which is going to be a life-shattering event for him. And the response was, I am Jesus in whom you are persecuting. I mean, he could have said, I am Jesus, and I am what? The guy who is speaking on Stephen's behalf. No, that's not what he said. Hey, I am the guy in whom you are persecuting my church. That's not what he said. He goes, no, I am the person you are persecuting. Like, it, in a sense, it, he is the guy who's standing up for you as the little bully getting kicked around. Like, he shows up on the playground, and he goes, listen to me. You, you think that you're going after the church? You think that you're going after someone in your zealousness for God, you think you're doing a good thing, but what you have done is now encroached upon the territory of the Most High God and His Son, the homeless of God, the same stuff as God, His Son, the one who came and dwelt among men, who dwelt in skin with flesh among His people, though they did not recognize Him. He died for you. He was crucified. He was resurrected. He raised from the dead. That's the guy you're persecuting, and it happens to be me. Now think about that for just a second. Do you think that if you love Jesus and you speak on his behalf, you think that maybe this God is concerned about that enough, that Jesus would get off his throne for his people? But even more than that, in this case, he goes, listen to me, you are persecuting me. I'm not worried about what you did to Stephen. I got Stephen, he's fine. But you, you are getting on dangerous ground. 
Think about this. Like, what freedom does that bring for the Christian who is scared to death to go into the aisle of Home Depot and share with that buddy that you happen to run into? I mean, what about the workplace that you really struggle to witness to? Like, what are you scared of? Like, Jesus goes, I'm here with you. I'll never leave nor forsake you is what he promised those in Hebrews. And also, what, guys like Joshua and Caleb who were so afraid to go in and get in the promised land. He goes, what are you afraid of? Jesus is with you. That's whom we aim to please. Why? Because we would love it if he would stand off his throne for us. Wouldn't that be awesome? I think it would be awesome. I hope that in 2018, I hope I live my life that way. And I hope it's not because I turn over a new leaf and I go, hey, this year I'm going to do so much different than I did last year. No, I hope that I'm just more like Jesus this year as a result of knowing and abiding in his word than I was last year. I hope I'm a little more faithful. I hope a little bit more patient. I hope a little more kind. I hope I exude a little bit more joy in the midst of my hardships. I hope a little bit more like Jesus. Why? Because that's what Jesus says. And he goes, don't worry about those who persecute me. I'm, I'm in it for you. And then after they had fallen to the ground and Jesus says all this, then he says in verse 16, now rise to your feet. Stand up upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Now he goes, Paul, the reason that I'm here is not simply to make a defense for me, although you are on dangerous ground, okay? Think about that for just a second. I mean, Jesus could go in any moment. He could just smite him. I mean, you had Enoch who walked with God and then was with him, right? I mean, like here, you could have Paul who was, was not for God and was just like zapped. And like you could have an incredible story here of reasons that you shouldn't go against God. And it would be a story for all of us Christians to share. Like, hey, dude, I wouldn't talk about God. I wouldn't use the Lord's name in vain. Look what he did to this guy. But that's not what he did. He goes, the reason that I am here, the reason I have appeared to you is this. Now, here's where you should start underlining. If, if you've kind of been zoned out all the way to this point going, I don't know who this guy named Paul is. It's a heck of a long story to get here, okay? Here's why you should pay attention. What God did with Paul is the same thing he wants to do with all of us. The reason that he appeared to him in glory is the same reason that he appeared to me. Now, listen. And the same reason he appeared to you. Now, your story may look different than Paul. Like, when God saved me, it, it did not look like a road to Damascus event. Like, I've never seen God show up in a bright light. I've never heard his audible voice. But what I do know is this, is that God radically took a young man who was prideful, who was all about his own life, about his own legacy, and he, he transformed his heart. A proud, arrogant, cynical young boy who... If God hadn't changed me, I don't know where I would be. I could promise you it wouldn't be in a faithful marriage, but it would be living up as a king to my own pleasure. And God changed me. And I can tell you, it wasn't like Paul's story. It was different. It wasn't one in which I can say, hey, I saw a bright light, and God spoke to me audibly. And I'm sure that most of you in here don't have that story either. If you do, I would love to hear it, right? Most of us, we don't have that story. Why? Because that's not how God interacts anymore. But in this story, Paul goes, I have this incredible story. But he doesn't get caught up in the lights and the glamour and the audible voice. What he does is he goes, this is why he appeared to me. I'm convinced that he appeared to me when I was a 12-year-old boy in my sin and why he appeared to you in your sin and in your brokenness is the same reason that he, he appeared to Paul. And so look at it. Paul says, he appeared to me for this, to appoint you, as a servant 
and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I appear to you. He says, Paul, the reason I'm calling to you, the reason I've showed up on this day, on this road, at midday, on your road to Damascus, is not to get you just to stop persecuting my name, but to actually use you. And I want to appoint you as a servant as a, and a witness. So God wants every single one of us to be a servant and a witness just like Paul was. And then he says in this, I have appeared to you so that you would what? Be delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. He goes, I'm going to deliver you from the way of thought that you thought was zealousness for God, but actually is ignorance of man. I'm going to deliver you from that way of thinking. And then I'm also going to deliver you from the hands of oppression from Gentiles that I'm actually going to send you to. I'm going to send you to people that do not know me. And why? To open their eyes. And so you are a servant and a witness sent out for God's purpose to what? See people's eyes enlightened and then opened for the sake of God. That's why you and I exist. That is the only reason that God in his redemptive measure stoops down and he keeps stooping and stooping and stooping even further yet to get near to man in our sin problem. And it is so that he would take you, clean you up, and use your story for redemptive hope to send you out as a witness and as a servant so that other men and women who once were like you, that their eyes may be opened and their ears will hear. That's it. That is the whole reason of the church. Our, our church does not exist so that we'll have a better event this year than we did last year. Our church doesn't event so that we'll have, have a culmination of some new great ministry. Our church doesn't grow because somehow we get things together and our leadership makes it easier for our people. That is not why the church exists. The church exists merely to be a people who were once called out of darkness into the wonderful light of Jesus, to be servants and witnesses for his glory and his namesake, saying, I am here, Lord, send me wherever it may be, whether it be over across uh, the way into a neighborhood that I despise or whether it be around the world. God, I am on mission. Dick talked about earlier, we're going to have a team of 26 people going out to Mexico this Saturday, and we're going on a mission trip. I despise the word mission trip. And the reason why is this, is that we're not going on a trip to do missions. We always do missions. Our life is called to be on mission. As servants, as witnesses, to proclaim the goodness of God to a people who need him, to open their eyes and their ears. And the question is, is okay, why? Why do we do that? And here it is. Look at it. Verse 18, so that people would turn from what? Darkness to light. Amen. That's why we share God's message of hope and reconciliation. is so we can talk about people who were once in sin and in bondage and slavery to their own sin problems, to guys like me who thought they were kings. Without God, man, where would I be? That's why we share the story, because he called me to be a man of light, to free from the power of Satan to God. I don't know if you realize this because most churches don't ever talk about it. I try not to because I, I can't really fathom telling some of the people that I love, but this is the truth. The scripture says that those who are not of God are children of disobedience, that you are child, children of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, that, that he has an authority over your life. That's what he does. He grips people and he enslaves them to their passions and to their lust and their desires he shapes their minds and their hearts in a way that are prone to, to what? Love themselves and to be lovers of their own desires. To push God away. 
to despise his truth. That's what Satan does. He wants people to be caught in slavery and sin and entrapped and ensnared into their own foolishness. And he goes, but no, we have come, like Paul, to be servants and witnesses, to preach the gospel, that people would come from light or from darkness into light, and not only that, from the power of Satan into the power of God. Ministers of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. That's why we're here. Why? So that people may receive forgiveness of sins. That's it. So that people would no longer have the burden of their sin problem accounted against them. That they would no longer be in weighted and balanced, the scales would tip in their favor because of their sin. But instead, the, the scales would be removed completely. That their eyes would be illumined and opened. That God would say, here you are, child, set free of slavery and a sin and a death because of what he's done on the cross. That's why we're here. And then he says, and then I give them a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He goes, you, you think about Abraham and his faith and how it is credited to him unto righteousness. Think about Moses. Think about Paul. Think about Stephen. Think about James. Think about John. Think about Peter. Think about all these martyrs of faith. He goes, I have taken your name when I call you out of light, when I give you forgiveness, and when I take you from the power of Satan and give you the power of God. He goes, I place your name among theirs. You are a saint of God. You are no longer some peasant sinner who can't have their life together. You are no longer a person defined by your brokenness. But you are a person who has been set free by the Most High God, that His power lives in you, that His Spirit resides, and He has given you a story to tell, to share, to live, and to celebrate. That's what He's done for us. Amen? And that's what the church should be. We should be a people of great stories. And then verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. All he goes is, King Agrippa, when you see a guy like Jesus appear to you on the road to Damascus, when you have this light shine around you and everybody falls to the ground, he goes, you listen. And then, listen, not only do you listen, but according to John 10, when, when the shepherd speaks, you, you obey. Now, this is what I find interesting. If I were to put two trees up on the screen, I were to show you one big oak and one small sapling, you would easily go, well, I know the big oak is the oldest one, right? But you know what's so strange around here is that oftentimes the big oaks around here, when I'm talking about people, are the ones who have been Christians for four years, and the little saplings are the ones who have been Christians for 25 years. I see more Oftentimes, in the case of God doing transformative work in people who have only been Christians for four, five, six, seven years than those who claim to have been Christians for 30 years. And all Paul is saying here is this, is that it's not possible to be disobedient to a heavenly vision. If God has changed your life, and you would say, oh yeah, God saved me when I was 13, the question is, is, is your life different now that you're 36 than you, when you were 13? How is it that you've been an oak for 25 years and you are still the small sapling? It's not possible. It's what he says. He goes, you can't be disobedient to what God's called you to. And he says, I was obedient. And then he says what he did. He goes, I shared the story of what God did. I declared it first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and all to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with the repentance. Sounds a lot like Acts 1, verse 8. That you would go, be his disciples, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the earth. He goes, hey, I started in Samaria, then I went to Jerusalem, then Judea, then I went to the Gentiles, which probably means what? 
Samaria, and then he goes, and, and wherever it was, and he goes, all I would do is say, hey, repent, turn from your sins, and then keep with the repentance. He goes, bear fruit. I, I mean, Jesus said it himself in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, how do you know that you're a disciple? He goes, if you bear fruit. And he goes, you'll see consistently that people bear fruit. That's our story. And then verse 21, for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple, and they tried to kill me. He goes, they have a problem with Jesus, and because they have a problem with Jesus, they had a problem with me. And so ever since, they've been trying to kill me. In verse 22, he says, to this day, I've had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, testifying both to small and great. He goes, God has protected me. He has been with me. And he has given me audiences small and great to tell this story. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Again, he goes, I'm not telling you anything that the Bible doesn't say. All I'm giving you is what the scriptures give you that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. He goes, the point is clear. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he dwelt among his people, his people rejected him. And so he took this gospel, this good news of his life, of his death, of his burial, of his resurrection, of a new life, of his ascension, of him residing at the right hand of the Father. And he has unleashed this. And if his people refuse it, then guess what? The Gentiles can receive it. And he goes, that's why I'm here. I am sharing what God has done. And then I love verse 24. I've laughed about it all week. And then he was saying these things in defense. And then Festus, the governor, remember? With a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He goes, dude, you're crazy. And Festus checks out of the conversation, basically. He goes, I can't, this is nuts. I mean, you're talking about a guy who came back from the dead. You're talking about a sinless life. You're talking about a vision shown out of heaven on the road to Damascus. Come on, dude, you're nuts. And then he kind of checks out. Then he respectfully replies, but, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then he turns his attention. He goes, for the king knows, and he turns his eyes to this guy named Agrippa who, by the way, has this incestuous sister sitting next to him named Bernice. And he goes, King, King, you know, King Agrippa, you know about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. He goes, I'm imploring to him. No disrespect, Festus, but if, if you want to think I'm a madman, that's cool. You don't even have to listen anymore. But I've asked him patiently to listen, remember? He goes, because he knows about these things. And then look what he says. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. And all he says is, Agrippa notes, he's heard about Jesus. He's heard about the claims of him being divine. He's heard about the claims of a perfect life. He's heard about the claims of Jesus saying, I am God. He's heard about him claiming to be resurrected. He's heard about the witnesses. He is a studied man. He knows Jewish thought. He knows what's happening in the culture. He goes, all I'm asking is, is, are you convinced like me? He goes, Agrippa, what do you think? And then look at his response in verse 29. And he says, Paul, whether short or long, I would do, uh, I would to God that not only you, but also, uh, I'm sorry. He goes, King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. He implores a little bit further. I know that you believe. And then Agrippa says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa goes, Paul, Man, I am so close. Man, we've run out of time. Ah, I mean, I, I got somewhere else to be. But in a sense, it's almost as if 
his heartstrings are being pulled. And it's almost as if he goes, Paul, you're so close to persuading me. Paul, what, what you're telling me is convincing, but I just can't. Why? Well, number one, he would have to admit that Jesus is who he says he is, and he would have to do it in the presence of a governor named Festus who says, you're a madman, Paul. He would have to do it in the presence of an incestuous relationship with this lady named Bernice who happens to be his sister. He would have to leave his kingdom. He would have to leave everything. It would be like the, the little J- Jewish ruler in Luke who has everything. Jesus says, hey, leave it all behind and come follow me. And he, he, he turns downtrodden. This is Agrippa. I mean, he knows that it's going to cost him everything. And he goes, I am so close, but I, I, but I just can't do it. I just can't do it. And then Paul says, well, whether short or long, I would, I would to God that not only for you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. He goes, man, I hope that everybody will be a witness for God. And that's my only prayer. And he goes, except for the change. He goes, I, I, this, this being locked up thing is not all that convenient and it's not all that fun, so I don't really wish that on anybody, right? And he kind of makes this little joke, and then King Agrippa and Festus and Bernice, they get up and they walk out of the room. Now, here's what struck me in this as we kind of wrap up. Has anybody ever called you crazy for the sake of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about, like, there are some of you in here that you get called crazy like once a week, okay? I get that. I'm not talking about that type of crazy, okay? I'm not talking about, like, a cra- crazy cat woman. I'm just talking about, like, crazy for the sake of Christ. Like, have, has anybody ever implored that to you? Like that Jesus Freak song that came out in the 90s by DC Talk? Like, has anybody ever said that you're just too radical in your faith? Hey, like you just believe too much. You just read your word too much. Like you're just a Bible thumper too much. I mean, you're just too devout to this thing. Like you do too much with your church. I don't really understand how it's pulling away from your family. You just seem too devoted. I don't understand why that always wins out in your life. Like when's the last time that somebody said that? Because here it is, Paul, his life is characterized by chains yet joy. He is a man convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. He believed that God could raise the dead. He believed that God was worth talking about when it came to his son and living and telling and celebrating the message and the hope of reconciliation, even if it was done in chains. But he said, I would talk to crowds small and great for the sake of God's glory. He goes, I believe that. He believed in the message of hope and reconciliation for all humanity. He goes, I'm not here just for the Jews, but I'm willing to go to the Gentiles and I'll go wherever. I'll start in Samaria, I'll go to Jerusalem, I'll go to Judea, I'll go to the Gentiles, I'll go wherever it is that God takes me. I used to go far and wide just for the sake of, what, persecuting Christians. He goes, now I would go far and wide for the sake of seeing people come from light or from darkness into light. I would see them come from bondage into freedom. He goes, that's what it's about. And I think, church, that's what we're to be about. And so you go, well, okay, what's that have to do with 2018? Here's what I want you to hear, okay? 2018 is, I hope, a year of not new beginnings, but of us being the new person that God has called us to be. I mean, we have a regeneration ministry right now that's doing a fantastic work, and, and I don't have a goal to see our regeneration ministry double the next year. That's not a goal of ours. Our goal is not to see our student ministry on Wednesday nights or our kids' ministry to somehow double in size. Our goal never, ever, ever, ever as a church is to come up with some crazy strategy to double ourselves in the next year. 
our, that's not our goal. We don't have a growth plan to somehow be the mega church of East Texas. Like, that's not our goal. Here's our goal. Our goal is to live radical pursuit of Jesus every day of our lives. And if God chooses to grow this church and this body, then praise God for that, I guess, right? As long as the growth is not us hopping from church to church, but it's new life. It's people coming out of darkness into the new life of Jesus. That's what it's all about. So if you're visiting from another church, I didn't mean to knock you there. I just want you to realize that we exist to see people come to faith in Jesus. That's why we're here. Our goal is never to create a new ministry. And so we have a new re-engage ministry to help marriages. We're not, we're not doing that to have a new ministry. Matter of fact, I kind of despise new ministries because it means we're going to have to have more volunteers. It means another night of the week for a lot of our people. And to be really honest with you, when, when our whole team approaches, they say, hey, Pastor Brandon, we want to do this. I go, that's great. I won't be there. And it's not because I don't believe in marriages. It's because I, I can't continue to do ministry every night of the week. That's not what God's called me. He called me to be a minister and a servant. I want to serve our church. But ministries only start here if people are called to them and there's somebody to lead them. We're not going to create ministries for the sake of saying, hey, we have this ministry and this ministry and this ministry. That's not our goal. Our goal is never to have great ministries. Our goal is never, ever, ever to double in size. Our goal is never to meet some financial quota. Our goal is to be who Jesus has called us to be, to live a life worthy of the call of the gospel. And I'm pretty sure that some of those other things will come along and maybe they're a bonus. But I want you to realize that the reason that we're here is to see new life and to share the stories of God's redemptive purpose. And so this year, all it's going to be about is teaching the Word and encouraging our people to study it. I encourage you to ask the question often, whether it be in your journey group or whether it be someone that you're serving with, to ask this question, hey, what has God taught you in the Word this week? And if you would say that I'm a been a Christian for 25 years, and you've never read the Word all the way through, this is the year to start, because that would, that would be kind of a crazy thought, I think, in Jewish tradition, but also in, in the Christian church, for you not to know God's Word. We ought to know God's Word. But listen, I'm not encouraging you to do this as some new thing. I'm not saying, hey, get in the Word. Let's make some crazy pledge together as a church this year to read through it every day. No, that's not the goal. Our goal is to be who God's called us to be, to love his word, to know his word, to talk about his word, and to allow his word to throw, flow through us, right? If you skip a day, it's okay. If you skip three days, it's okay. But just daily, let's pursue Jesus. Not in a sense of legalism, but a sense of joy, of knowing his word, abiding in it, it flowing to us and through us. And then let's share stories of redemption. And I would say if there was one apology that I would make for our church, in the first six and a half years of our church, is that we haven't told enough God-sized stories. I've got to see a lot of them. I've seen a lot of them, and I've heard of a lot of them, but I haven't shared them all. And so can I just tell you, here's how we're going to do 2018. We're going to just share God's story. And we're going to start out next week, and we're going to share stories, stories of life transformation. And so you're not going to see me on the stage for quite a few weeks, and that's okay, because it's not about a personality or one preacher. I, you don't need me to be the church. You realize you don't need any of our pastor or staff. We are the church. You all are saints of God. We are all called to be his messengers, his servants, to go and share the message. You got me? So we gather in this place to encourage each other to go and be sent out. That's the purpose. But I hope that you'll be more encouraged by stories of life change and redemption 
of stories like this guy named Paul who goes, hey, uh, yeah, I was zealously pursuing God, and I was killing lots of people. And think about that. If you heard that on the stage, like, what would you do? You'd probably search for a new church, wouldn't you? Like, there's like some guy last week, he was a convict killing people. Now, now he's telling you, that's who he was. And God tra- changed his life. And so we're going to tell you stories. And so my prayer is, is that you would catch on to those things, that you would get excited about it. When you hear stories about what God has done, that my goodness, that you would share them. Don't keep them to yourself. Because that's how the church grows. And I am convinced that every ministry we have will grow. I'm convinced that our church will continue to expand and flourish. And I'm convinced that we will be who God calls us to be if we just say, man, God is who is supreme in this place. And let's talk about what he's doing. Amen? Let me pray for you and pray I send you out in encouragement. God, we love you and we thank you for today. I pray that you would use this word to bless many hearts and to encourage us to be your hands and feet, the servants of the Most High God. Thank you, Lord, for calling me out of my sin and my rebellion and my darkness and my shame and giving me a new life in Christ. And Lord, humbly help me to live in you by the power of the Spirit that leads me. And uh, God, help me to put my pride and foolishness aside. God, help me to walk in your word, to humbly submit to your truth. God, help us to lead us as a people to things that please you. We thank you and we love you. And uh, we proclaim your goodness and your excellencies as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray.